Welcome to episode 44 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. For those of you who follow this series attentively, you'll know that this is the first new episode I've produced in the past roughly 90 days. And I apologize for this long delay, but I had a series of coughs, colds, hoarseness, laryngitis, and I just didn't have the voice. It wasn't a lack of interest or a lack of goodwill. And I want to thank you for your patience and your forbearance and your continued support. I will begin today with an introduction to the Caucasus, which comprises three separate countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, which I happen to know very well. So this introduction will be highly personal and idiosyncratic, as will the episode devoted to Armenia, where I lived and worked when we first opened a U.S. embassy there back in the early 90s when the Soviet Union imploded. And my experience on the ground there, which was almost two years, brought me into physical and political and verbal contact with colleagues in both Azerbaijan and Georgia because they were important neighbors and there were a lot of regional issues, uh, one of which is still going on. There was a report in the New York Times as recently as January of this year about an increase in the shooting war between Armenia and Azerbaijan which is a conflict that's been going on for at least 30 years and is what some would call a frozen conflict, except even frozen conflicts occasionally erupt into gunshots, violence, and deaths. At one point in 2020, Moscow had successfully brokered a ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan and sent 2,000 peacekeepers to enforce this. However, as that ceasefire broke down, and Moscow became diverted by its brutal invasion of Ukraine. Its influence on this conflict waned. The conflict has reemerged as a topic of hot concern, and its roots are many. But as good an introduction to the region as any is looking at this conflict in some detail. Before we do that, however, I should let you know where the Caucasus is, because it's a region that very few Americans have visited or studied much about. Not sure why that's the case, but it certainly is. Don't feel alone if you haven't been there or not quite sure where it is. It's the landmass between, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And it's bordered by Iran on the south, by the Russian Federation on the north, by Turkey and the Black Sea on the west, and by the Caspian Sea on the east. It is historically a crossroads of many different civilizations. There were Greeks there, there were Romans there, there were Byzantines there, there were Mongols, there were also Arabs, there were the Ottoman Turks, there were the Persians. All the great civilizations in the region fought over and penetrated multiple times into this region, which is mountainous, beautiful, produces some of the best wines on earth. Actually, Georgia has probably the oldest wine industry known to humanity, and it makes its wines in a very interesting way. Most of the rest of the world ages wine in wooden barrels in a temperature-controlled room called a cellar, or cave in French. In Georgia, they age wine in 
large terracotta urns which are buried in the earth, and those are called kvevri, and they have produced wines this way for at least 3,000 years. And even when you go into a very small wine shop in the capital of Georgia, you will see and be able to buy and be able to taste as many as 3,000 wines in a tiny store, not a big emporium like Total Wines or anything. It's quite surprising, but most wine production in Georgia has not been industrialized. So it's on a personal sort of artisanal basis. And a lot of producers of great wines in Georgia make like 100 cases a year, as opposed to 100,000 or more, which is the case in more highly industrialized wine producing countries. Georgia also sticks out from the other two countries in the Caucasus by virtue of its outstanding cuisine. In the old Soviet times, if you were traveling somewhere in the Soviet Union and you were in any town of any size, whether it was Moscow or Kiev or what was then Leningrad, whatever, if you wanted to get a good meal, you would look for the local Georgian restaurant and you would get the best meal in town. Now, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, that has changed a little bit in the sense that in Kiev and Moscow and other large cities, and even Riga, for example, which is the capital of Latvia, you can get fabulous meals with local specialties or Italian specialties or French specialties or whatever. You don't have to search for the Georgian restaurant in order to get a decent meal. But you will still eat very well in Georgian restaurants, even in cities like Washington, D.C., where there's a superb example of Georgian cuisine in a restaurant called Supra. The basic difference between Armenia and Georgia on the one hand and Azerbaijan on the other is that Azerbaijan is a Muslim country which speaks a language that is in the Turkic language family and is more or less mutually comprehensible with Turkish. There are lots of differences, but Turks and Azeris can understand each other without a problem. However, Georgia and Armenia have two languages that have their own branches on the Indo-European family tree of languages and also their own impenetrable alphabets. I actually learned enough Armenian when I served there to give speeches and make toasts and whatever, but it is not an easy language. And if you speak even a few words or can make a simple sentence and you're in, for example, the Armenian quarter in Jerusalem, they roll out the red carpet for you. They're so amazed that somebody who's not Armenian can come out with a phrase or a sentence that's well-pronounced, that they'll basically do anything for you and you instantly get like a 100% discount on whatever it is you want to buy. It's, it's quite, quite impressive. That being said, the giving toasts is a very important part of life in the Caucasus. Kids practice giving toasts in front of mirrors from the time they're three or four. Basically from the time that they can speak, they practice, little boys in particular, practice giving toasts and it's not unusual to spend an evening in Armenia or Georgia with dozens of toasts by everybody present. And they have to be sort of witty and original and you have to avoid cliches. So it's a challenge. And it's one of the few things that the region has in common. The major dividing line, there are many, but the major one is Christian versus Muslim. And this is true in many parts of the world. This dividing line plays a role far deeper and far less conscious than we often think. We here in America don't think much about the Crusades. But for a lot of people in the Islamic world, the Crusades are an ongoing battle that continues even today 
between people they regard as infidels and people they regard themselves as the faithful. In Christian nations, the categorizations are reversed. The Muslims were the infidel and the Crusades were fought to retake the Holy Land from the infidel or to expel the infidel from the Holy Land. And this sparked a... I hope not an eternal, but certainly a very long-running conflict between Muslims and Christians throughout the world. But as you know, the Crusades didn't take place until the end of the 11th century and then for a couple of hundred years after that. That's a long time ago. But as I've said often before in this podcast series, other nations have much longer historical memories than we in the U.S. do. And these things are not just shelved and dismissed as, oh, that's history. These things are powerful motivators for modern-day behavior. And even before that, when Islam was born in the mid-7th century, it quickly expanded in all directions from the Arabian Peninsula, east, north, and west. And there were battles as far away as northern France in the 8th century. And the Muslims totally incorporated the Iberian Peninsula as part of their empire early in the 8th century. So their presence in the southwest corner of Europe was the dominant one and politically the most powerful one and academically, philosophically, artistically, the most potent force for roughly 700 years. And it's something we ignore at our peril. Anyway, there's at least one other important factor behind this ongoing conflict in the Caucasus. And it's a bit more complicated to explain, so bear with me here. Stalin, for all the bad things he did, was a very far-sighted and shrewd politician. And when he drew the maps that determined the borders of the various countries that had been incorporated into the Russian Empire during the Tsarist period. This was before the Soviet Union existed. But eventually, these areas were all administered by the Soviet Union, which could draw whatever borders it wanted to. And whoever has the political power has the power to make the maps. And Stalin very cleverly, diabolically even, fiendishly, one might say, drew borders that divided ethnic groups into two or more states so that foreseeing the day the Soviet Union might fall apart, Stalin wanted to make sure that these newly independent countries would be at each other's throats. And he succeeded beyond all reasonable hope in multiple parts of the former Soviet empire. There are a lot of territorial conflicts in Central Asia that nobody bothers to know anything about, but in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, they're all borders that are drawn in the middle of a common ethnic group, which ends up finding itself on two or even three sides of newly created international borders. So this is a a guarantee of instability. Even in Georgia, there are what some might say are breakaway regions, some might say are occupied regions, but there's a half dozen conflicts in North Ossetia and Abkhazia, this, that, and the other thing. These are sub-regions, micro-regions that nobody's ever heard of in the U.S., but that cause hundreds of lives to be lost over the course of the post-Soviet period. So this current armed conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan is essentially over a bit of land called 
Artsakh in Armenian, Nagorno-Karabakh in Russian, and I'm not really sure what it's called in Azeri, so I won't hazard a guess. But it's an enclave that is ethnically 100% Armenian and historically part of the Armenian national soul and identity and even the site of an ancient, important Jewish community. It's completely surrounded by Azeri territory. And there's a road called the Laching Corridor that connects most of Armenia to this little separated bit. It's sort of dismembered. And obviously, the people who live in Armenia want to regain Artsakh and complain, rightly or wrongly, that the Azeris discriminate against and brutalize all the Armenian inhabitants of this region that is essentially Armenian. And the Azeris see it as theirs, because on the map that Stalin drew, it belonged to Azerbaijan. There's another enclave that's an interesting one, actually nestled between southwestern Armenia and Turkey is a part of Azerbaijan called Nakhchivan. And Nakhchivan can only be reached from Azerbaijan by land if you drive either through Iran or you drive through Armenia. But there's no physical connection between Nakhchivan, which is a good-sized chunk of land, and the rest of Azerbaijan. So this is another diabolical border drawn by Stalin to sow the seeds of future trouble. Now, this raises another question. All these horrible Russian leaders who were oppressive, brutal dictators, etc., etc., in the worst possible way, why were they so far-sighted? Why did they always take the long view? I mean, for many, many centuries, a long-term standing foreign policy goal of whoever ruled Russia, whether it was czars or commissars or the Central Committee of the Communist Party, was to gain access to warm water ports. So it made historically an effort to gain control over Constantinople or Istanbul or the Bosphorus, because that was the one piece of water that would enable it to sail from its southern warm water ports to the rest of the world. This and other characteristics of first Russian and then Soviet foreign policy are amazingly durable. And there's something to ponder here, I think, in that American politicians are elected for two years or four or six in the case of senators. But it's a relatively short term. Nobody's elected for life. And nobody expects to hold on to power for 50 years in this country. And people are often preoccupied with the next election as soon as the last one is finished. So it seems to be very difficult for America to pursue consistent long-term foreign policy goals, maybe because our politicians are in office for such a short time. Russians, on the other hand, who enjoyed absolute power and there were no checks and balances ever in Russian history, can basically do what they want. And oddly, what they want has been surprisingly frequently in accord with their long-term national interests. And this is certainly one of the key reasons for this ongoing conflict, or the several ongoing conflicts, actually, in the Caucasus today. Not that any one of these countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, is especially bloodthirsty, but they're basically engaged in trying to rectify mischievously and devilishly drawn borders that date from the time of Stalin, if not even earlier. So I hope this gives you at least some understanding of where the Caucasus is 
what are the three countries that comprise the Caucasus and what is the source of most of the current conflicts among those countries. Each country has a significant and very different Jewish history, which we will address in forthcoming episodes as we look at the specificities of each of these three countries and the peculiarities and histories and great colorful traditions of their respective Jewish communities. Thanks for your attention. I look forward to talking with you again soon.